Welcome to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast, all about real estate investing in the Calgary market. And now your host, Corey Peckford. Hey guys, in today's show, I had the pleasure of interviewing Ben Oscarville. Ben is a real estate investor that went through the 2008 real estate crash while holding a significant portfolio. He was also very successful in sales, then became a top producing realtor in Edmonton. His focus now is being a mindset and real estate coach. Ben has great energy and passion for life and what he does. He's also a keynote speaker. You'll quickly see that he's an open book. During the show, he shares a little bit about his backstory and some of the major challenges he went through growing up from living on the street and struggling with addictions. Ben's story is very inspiring. I think you'll really enjoy this show. Hey, Ben, I just want to welcome you to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast. Maybe can you just start off by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself? What's keeping you busy these days? Sure, man. Hey, nice to be on your show, Corey. I hear it's uh, rocking and rolling. Starting to hear a lot about it. So that's awesome, dude. What am I doing nowadays? Run a national coaching business for real estate agents. We work with agents that need to put in systems and buy back their life. Turn the hustler real estate agent who's busy into a fully skilled business owner. We also have working with agents that are stuck and they need to get going and fill their pipeline. And, but I do a lot of keynotes and speaking and coaching. And the truth is it's all mindset work. We focus on mindset work. It's not the traditional stuff. So that's where we're seeing transformation, but living in West Vancouver, I got a family of seven, five kids being here for a couple of years. It's been something we've had a vision to live here. I live looking at the ocean every day. I believe that if anyone follows me, you'll see me hashtag build a life you love on a daily basis. Love who you are love where you live, love what you do, and love who you're with. That's the four models. So spent a long time just building the life I love and trying to make an impact on people's lives and build a life where we can do whatever we want, whenever we want. <laughs> that's what we want. Hey, that's amazing, man. Let's, let's start off, I guess. I know your backstory, but I would like you to share your backstory. I know you were an Edmonton, successful realtor, and you also built a portfolio as well. So we're going to dive into all that yeah. stuff, but maybe if you could just start by your backstory. Cool, man. Yeah. Grew up in Edmonton, had a brutal relationship with my dad. And my mom was a good Christian woman who would support my dad. I'm sure there's some people out there that understand what I'm talking about. Felt like it was an environment I didn't want to live in. And when I was 13 years old, I ran away. And by the time I was 15, I was living on the streets. One thing I never got was that feeling of self-worth. I never felt worthy. I never felt loved, but I knew deep down I had purpose. And so I left, I literally was like 12 years old thinking if I stay with this family, I'm going to turn out like them and they're not bad people, but they're just definitely weren't the best parents. And so I even found people that really loved and accepted me and they were drug addicts. And I felt like I could fit in there, started doing drugs, lived on the streets, did a few years, a little bit of crime here and there and fights and just living this life on this, just a kid. I look at my kids now, I got a 19 year old. I just can't believe that I was on the streets, 14, 15, 16. So I'd like, was going on. It's crazy. Anyways, I went hardcore for a long time and ended up one night just completely high and had this crazy feeling. And I went back to my parents' house at three in the morning, sat down and said, I want to change my life. And I went into a rehab center called Teen Challenge. I spent 365 days in rehab, ended up working there and started to fix my life up. So I started getting pretty normal, somewhat normal, had a lot of demons, a lot of anger and a lot of problems that came from that kind of lifestyle. And by 21, I was married and by I think 22, I was in sales. 
after working as a counselor there and fundraiser. And I spoke all over the place, giving my testimony in churches and all these different places. Mm-hmm. But yeah, man, I got into sales. I just dominated. I sold two and a half million dollars of office furniture at a company called Gunner Office Furnishings out of Calgary. I landed the Calgary School Board. I landed Husky, Imperial Oil. I was a machine, man. And uh, sales was my thing, but it was also my dad's thing. And so very much motivated to make him proud or tell him to, you know, F off. It's like this weird relationship where I didn't have my own authentic goals. It was my dad was a sales guy and I'll show him either I'll make him love me or I'll beat him at his own effing game. And so I went through that when I was top of my game, I quit my job and became a real estate investor because I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, or listened to an audio success story book. And I just got crazy. I was like, this is it. This is what I want to do. So I quit my job. And within 14 months, I had 41 properties. That's insane. Well, thank you for like that backstory is very powerful as well. The fact that you were able to bring yourself out of, right? The depths of uh, the struggling. I had a troubled childhood as well, so I can totally relate to your story. And when you look back, you kind of wonder, you know, you just see yourself as a kid that was very troubled and bad headspace, right? Yeah, Um, just to be honest, you just, when you don't feel loved and you're looking for that and you don't know how that works, you do a lot of things you get really resentful and angry depression and all this stuff, this stuff happens. And I think at the end of the day, we just weren't loved and in a way that we felt loved. Honestly, I think it comes down to wanting to be loved. Everyone in life just wants the same thing. It's I see you, I hear you, and I love you. Three fundamental things that humans are desperately looking for. And a lot of times they live their entire life chasing someone else's goals and dreams and all these different things. Like how many agents that I coach, they chase a GCI goal and it's the most crazy thing. They want to get 50 deals but what if their dream life was 40 deals? So for your audience, the investors, what if 10 properties was the ultimate beautiful place, but then someone says, I should get 20. The problem is when you start chasing someone else's goals, the cost becomes relationship, becomes self-hatred, becomes stress, becomes sickness. I think authentic goals is what do you really want is something that uh, I've learned through you know, those hard times. And so I see a lot of people you know, I, I just wanted to be loved. And so we create all these goals and everything to feel significant and special. And sometimes you just, it's an inner game thing, not an exterior game. For sure. For sure. How did you learn the skills of sales? Like once you started out and, you know, get into the furniture business, how did you kind of develop and become the top salesperson? I think you got to be a really insecure, wanting to prove yourself and balls of steel that gets you to the top of the game. Relationship wise was not my skill, but sales was at the time. My dad, my dad showed me a system and I still teach the similar system today. I obviously get rid of all the manipulation and all the bullshit sales stuff that we learned that we should not be doing. I trained it in a relationship game now. I believe in connection, not conversion, but I learned by grabbing a phone book called every single oil company in Calgary. I got mastered being rejected. I think I'm going to write a psychology book called how to feel bad. I think it's the greatest problem that people have psychologically. They don't know how to feel bad. They avoid feeling bad is their entire life is an avoiding of feeling bad. I'm okay to feel bad. That's my greatest advantage. You can judge me right now. I don't like it. I want you to like me. But if you judge me, I literally know how to carry that. And I'm fine with it. And it's not that I'm thick headed. I just emotionally know how to carry negative feelings. People don't know how to do that. So it's best sales training is get rejected more than the other guy and get used to that. It's just like a hot tub, right? Eventually you jump in the hot tub. It's extremely hot, but then within time, you don't even feel it anymore. People yeah, avoid that sure. part. Did you ever, just because back to the, when you're on the streets, you probably, you know, when that person you see with the sign or whatever, where at the red light where you're walking by asking people for hand, you know, did you ever do that during that time as well? I'm just curious. 
like actually like being a bum in a way. Well, right? not, not a bum, but like, you know, some of that say, hey, you so, got some spare change, that kind of thing. So what I did was I was always an innovator. I was always a business mindset. So I'd, I guess there's some sales training for you. I'd go up to someone and say, hey, look, don't have any bus money. Is there any way you can hook me up? I would I never, take, I would never take the road of like, I need food. But I also was not needle user that was complete like today's drugs Corey, are freaking scary man like i was old school right you know you got just old school new school is chemical everything and you see these people just sitting yeah. on the street like, like zombies they're, they're like, like in a statue like leaning over something yeah, I, saw, just, I saw a video in vancouver and it's they, hardcore dude it's crazy it's man. a whole new game thank god that i wasn't into that yeah but i would steal and bribe. So one time I remember my parents kicked me out of the house. I had snuck in. It was minus 25 below. That's Celsius. That's really cold. And it was winter. I snuck into my bedroom because I was living on the street and I wasn't allowed to be at home. And I needed a place to sleep. I snuck into the through the window to the bedroom and I hid in my closet and tried to be really quiet just so I could get a night's sleep. That was in my own room because I wasn't allowed there. And my mom found me and they kicked me out. Wow. It was minus like 30. And so what I did was I got innovative. I got a cab and I ditched the cab because I couldn't pay for them. So I dined and dashed in a way, you know, I took the ride and I just ran out the door. <laughs> this guy's mad at me, but he's a survivor. And I got into a liquor store. I grabbed a crown Royal, stuck it in my sleeve or my jacket, or maybe it was a, something that goes in. My, I think it was crown Royal. Actually, I somehow I stole a crown Royal. And then I went to a buddy's house and said, Hey dude, I need to sleep somewhere. Can I trade you? And so I give him a two, four, I got a big crown Royal. I gave him wow. and I let me sleep there at night. And the other thing was I knew how to work and I was always a leader. Like, and so there was a way of like convincing people that I should be the leading. And so I always had this kind of like spark about me that I feel like I had purpose. I knew I had something special. I knew that I could talk and lead. And I knew that I was just manipulative, narcissistic and all this bullshit that I had adopted in my life. I had to figure that out because it was very selfish, everything I would do to serve me. And that was because there's a survivor. So yeah, I never stood there with a sign. I was always creative and inventive to try to create money. I was always an entrepreneur, even in the street days. I was a kid though. Yeah, for sure. You got into the sales, furniture sales, and obviously sort of getting uh, some capital and cash coming in. And then, so you said you read the book or listened to the audio book and then started to scale to 41 properties. So that's a pretty amazing as well. So yeah. could you kind of maybe start with how did you find your my, first property? How my did first one, I still own it today. It's a property in Calgary. Literally back in the day, you could assume mortgages and not qualify. It was the craziest thing. You, you can do still it. do that today. Yeah, you can do it today as well. It's agreement for sale or vendor take back is what they'll do today. They just different. It's a little orders. bit different. This one was literally, I took over their mortgage. The bank would just give it to me. Like it was literally. No oh, the, oh really? Oh, yeah, it just, was. Oh, I see. Just, okay. yeah, so I would, oh. I would just sign it over. The lawyers would just put me on the mortgage. It was the craziest thing. So what I did was I uh, bought a property and I pulled $10,000 of credit card debt and bought it. And, and I then didn't even. How did you it. find the property? Was it a just realtor? for it. I don't know, man. It's a long time ago, like long time ago. I just looked for it, found it. And I literally had no clue what I was doing, but I had balls of steel. And I'm like, yeah, I'll buy it. And the guy's like, do you want to negotiate? I'm like, oh yeah, it was stupid. And I ended up assuming the mortgage. He walked away and then it went up in value. But here's the crazy thing. I knew nothing. I just knew I want to buy real estate investing. Just crazy. Like I was just like action, action, action. It just proves that taking action is actually, your odds are so much higher 
in life, if you take action, then sit there and be analysis paralysis. Like I took action. So I had to solve problems. I knew me, I knew I could solve problems. I knew I could figure out anything. So I had confidence in myself, but I went and knocked on the door to the tenant and guess what happened? She ducked and literally crawled to the back of the house. <laughs> I'm like, oh shoot. And then there's this big, scary dog there. So I bought it sight unseen. Wow. You didn't so, even get to go in it. No, I just bought it. I don't know. I'm just buying this thing. It looked like a good location. And it still was. I got lake privileges on that property, man. It's awesome. It's been amazing. So anyways, I had to go first things first. I got to get her out. So court order, got her out. I don't know. I don't even know how I paid the bills. I came in there and that place was so disgusting. So cleaned it up and oh yeah, man, just started the journey. And then I refinanced that. So I maxed those out and I thought I'm going to get investors, started raising money, finding real estate investors quit my job and just went full speed. Wow. Just went crazy. And then how, what kind of timeline, like from the time you got your first one, did you move into that one or did no. like once you got her out? That you was a rented, rental. You just, yeah, rented, just rented it. Yeah. I see. And then you do any renovations on it, that kind of stuff? Yeah, I cleaned it? it up a bit. Yeah. We got flooring over the years. I put a roof on it twice. Fences built. It's got a garage. I rent the garage out separately to this day. Same tenant for a long time. He puts his plumbing supplies there. It's always, I love the two rentals. My strategy there, I've always rented in that particular one to elderly tenants at a lower price and they stay forever. Yeah. So yeah. I find the kind of like that baby boomer generation or a little bit younger who rent. So a lot of people will come from BC or other places because family. So I've had that at two or three times. They're just like that middle-aged, you know, 50, 60 year old person. That's what I've always focused on in that one. And it's just been a crazy, but interest rates jumped. So I had to refinance that this year. My payments went up like three, $400. It was crazy. So cranked up my rent, 400 bucks. Everyone got mad and then they all pay. Yeah. So yeah that's yeah. just how it happened. So I don't know, man. I bought in Hinton, Red Deer, Calgary, and Edmonton. That's where I still hold property in those cities. But I don't know, man. I just found properties and told people 50-50, I'll take care of it. You just got to buy it. I created a performa, a one-page spreadsheet. This is the deal. What do you think? And it was good. But Corby, we got to understand, we were at a time where we hadn't seen a crash in a long time. I had 61 properties when the crash hit. It was crazy. 2008, June, bam. Holy shit. That was the craziest time. And I was young, man. Salesman, right? So when you're a salesman, you're convincing people. And then all of a sudden, you can't deliver. Like I had properties we were stuck in that we were going to flip. And they're not a good long-term holds. And it was just an experience, but not necessarily an experience inexperienced in the fact that I've never gone through a crash. Like a lot of people today, Corey, are in the same place. I'm watching it happen again. I had predicted this last dip a year ago, but I watched the same behavior. Do you know what I know to be careful? My first warning sign is when someone calls me and says, Ben, I need your advice on investing. I said, sure. He's in a different province. And he says, there's this new build that's going up in BC and I want to do a pre-build for an investment. And I was like, we are back here again. <laughs> yeah. It's so easy, man. It's like, this crazy. The BC market's going awesome. All I got to do is put a deposit down. And then what I got to do is I'll sell this thing. It'll be the easiest 50 to 120 or 30 grand. And I'm like, don't do it. You yeah, might get yeah. lucky. And then they don't understand what it is to have a crash. And so I seen it coming. It's people have had too long of a run here. They have too long of a run. Everyone's like, so I think long-term is the game, of course. I'm a huge long-term. I've done flips. I've done all kinds of stuff. I've bought in properties. Corey, how about this one? I bought a property in High River. I got it under contract, wave conditions. I relisted it a week later for $30,000 more, okay, with another agent. I don't know how the hell they listed it, but they listed it. And so I wasn't even on title. 
So they listed it and I simultaneously closed and I made 30 grand in a week. That's called stupid. Yeah. That's called the market is so on fire that you can print money. I just took advantage of it. I would highly recommend not to do that. I would change the way I built my investment company if I had to rerun it. Now that I've gone through a crash, now that I've raised millions of dollars of investors' money, there's so many things I would do that would, if I could rebuild it really quickly again, but I would do it differently. So maybe you explain, how would you do it sure. differently just to so, protect yourself? Yeah, what I would do is I would raise more money than I need and I would put more money down. And now it sounds so crazy because I was obsessed with ROI, but you know what would be cool is that the investor has a higher cash flow for a longer time. And I'd probably go big, big projects. So potentially I'd probably raise, you know, raising 10 million and raising a million is very similar, to be honest, or raising a hundred grand and raising a million. I should probably say it's pretty similar. If you have a good deal, people come out of the woodworks. It's not hard to raise money. If it's the deals there, people want to put money and make money. There's tons of money out there. Not hard to raise money. The thing is though, I buy something that's probably, I just go heavily security. I'd be the old guy. I'd be like, Hey guys, we're going to park this. We're going to buy this building. Here's where it's at. Potentially, if I was going to do commercial, I like that idea of renovating and changing the cap rate and raising the value just by fixing things up and raising rents. I like that idea. I wouldn't have bought in so many single family homes. I would have bought way more consolidated. Like, dude, I had 61 properties, all single family in four cities. The amount of bookkeeping, property management, and all of these different things, which obviously we're killer at now, but that was hard, man. I would just buy a building and I would probably make that building amazing. I'd raise money from all the investors to make it 10 out of 10 condition, raise the value with renovating, raising rents, and maybe change a commercial person from a you know John's convenience store to turn it to Starbucks or whatever. Like try to do stuff like that. I don't know if I would ever build. It's not my forte, but I would buy and hold, but I'd buy way bigger projects because the bigger the project, the easier it is to manage. Like even if you bought an apartment, you can hire a commercial level property manager versus Property manager of single family is very difficult. To this day, Corey, I manage all my own properties myself. I got wow. a hack for that. I don't believe in property management. I hey, just think they're brutal. What's, what's your hack? hack? What's the hack? <laughs> you bet. I can't leave that one. So, dude, this is what you do. You bribe people, okay? <laughs> so, think about this. You can put an ad out in any city and say, $500 to help me re-rent my house. 500 bucks. Yeah. 300. People make 300 bucks. All you got to do is... Open the door. So first of all, you got to put the ad in Kijiji. You got to put the ad out or I can do that part or my team can or whatever. But usually they'll just put it out on like, you know, the hint and buy and sell or the, like, they'll just start putting it out. It's not hard to find tenants. You can give them direction. Then they just show the property and they call me. How was the showing? Cool. And then all they do is give the application and then the tenant comes to me and I screen them. Then that other person does the move in, the walkthrough, and that's it. I just, so you're, I just, you're doing the screening. Do you prep that person that you've basically hired to do this? Do you prep them a little bit, what to look for, that kind of stuff? Or is, is it more just... The, I just tell them if they want to see the property. I said, some of my rules are boyfriend, girlfriend, don't like it. They always break up. I don't like big, scary dogs. I love animals. I'll take animals all day. Having a lot of kids, don't like lots of kids. Brutal on your house. I got five <laughs> kids. You should see the walls. You know, kids are brutal. And have fun kicking kids out. Like if you got a bunch of kids, don't rent to them ever. And yeah. if you have a scary dog, don't rent to that. But he always charged it 50 to 100 bucks a month extra for the dog. I don't take pet deposit. I see. Yeah. Why? I'll raise my rent. If the pet's going to wreck things, it's going to be thousands, no matter what. So I might as well raise the money. So it's 50 to 75, $85 a month extra for an animal. And for then sure. so that's been how I've done it. And so the hack is bribe someone to open and show it. And then they get the applications. And then I ask them, what do you think of these people? And then I pick someone. 
That's awesome, man. So what during the downturn, you had properties in various markets. Did you find some perform better? Like, because it was all in Alberta, it was just basically all across the board. It was all Alberta. Yeah. Did like BNC property in Calgary do better than say in Hinton? More not necessarily. Yeah, Red Deer. I've got written Red Deer. Those are dogs. I got a couple dogs there. It's an apartment building. I bought a couple units, but that apartment building dropped in value. That was the last group that we bought. We bought a bunch in there and that building didn't turn out. It's still an asset. It's still a rental, but it's just not a home run. The home runs I've had, I've had lots of home runs, and but in a portfolio, you have a mixture. So Red Deer, not my favorite place. Calgary, Edmonton, great. Love it's those the, ones. The appreciation, right? Like if you look at Red Deer's long-term appreciation, it's pretty flat. Like something like that's right. City. That's yeah. right. So the thing is, I love the Calgary market. Love the houses. I would just stay away from condos. Stay away from anything other than my own house. I pay the money to do the renovations and things myself, do the maintenance myself versus being in a condo. The only thing is I should say one thing. I've got an Airbnb in a condo right now and it's pretty easy, man. We actually got in trouble because I did an Airbnb and the condo board was slapped my hand right away. Like, what are you doing? Because it was furnished already. And so it was awesome. It was renting like crazy, but then obviously other tenants or other owners did not like me doing that. So I just knew the rules though. So that's the one thing is, you know your shit, man, know the law, go read the act and understand the Residential Tenancy Act, go know the rules and the condo rules, just know that shit. The thing is the rule in the condo says you're allowed to have long-term rentals. So I looked up the definition and that's 30 days or more. So I changed my Airbnb to 30 days or more and I rent it out constantly now. They can't stop me, I'm within the rules. And it works out great. And that condo is awesome, man. It's awesome. Rentals all the time. Never have an issue with it. So downtown with Underground Parking, Edmonton, like that one. I like the house I have in Calgary. Awesome house. I rent the garage separately. That's been a real gold mine. We've sold a few too that have just been huge. So I think the game though, the game I used to say, God, give me 10 years, I always make money. I actually don't believe that anymore because I've had some properties that didn't go up in value for 10 years now, now that I'm older in the game. So I think buying in the right location is every single thing. You got to buy in an area that's going to go up in value because it's an equity game. Cash flow people think, oh, I'll live off the cash flow. What about the roof that cost me 10 grand? The two furnaces that were 20,000 the last couple of years on the other condos I haven't hinted or townhouses. Like, I just feel like, yeah, you're going to make some money, but I think the game is a long game wealth building game more than it is about a cash flow game. Cash flow is the maintenance and the price you pay to maintain it, upgrade it, fix shit, leaks. Yeah, and- for sure. Now, can we also get you to share maybe after so once 2008 hit, you had 61 properties and then you're like, holy shit, you know, I've got properties that are bad rentals. Nobody wants to buy them. How do you survive dealing with what was going yeah, on? Yeah, So we were well off. We had really strong investments. We did well. Everything was solid. We were low risk still. The only thing is we had a couple at the end, just the market. The market completely crushed us because when you have an appraisal coming in at $200,000 for a condo and then it drops to 150, what do you do? And so now you're sitting there going, okay, so we'll wait for the value to go up. And then we're sitting there. The bigger issue I had, Corey, wasn't the investments. The biggest issue was having 20 investors that lost all their money in the market. And I'm 20 some years old, 27 years old. And I'm like, holy shit, people pleaser performance, sales first kind of guy doing good work though. Like we had a good investment portfolio and we were doing good. We were honest. We had great business and the investments though was the market. When you have a market crash at that magnitude, when you have financial planners jumping out of their high-rise buildings and killing themselves, I didn't realize the pressure that I was facing as a young man. That's the one thing I learned, Corey, is that looking back, I was like, holy shit, I handled it very well, considering I didn't know. In my mind, I thought I was the dumb one. 
Like somehow I messed up, but I didn't. It was the market. Like we're talking about like 40, 50% of the market crash, like boom, like the scariest time ever. And you got investors calling me and I'm 27 years old and investors are like, Ben, I lost everything on the stock market. I want to sell. I said, we mm. can't sell right now, but my was a performance mentality. So I was feel like it was an identity crisis for me because now I'm a failure. And I didn't know that we were actually half decent. I didn't know. I thought I was up. I thought, what's going on? How do you navigate something like that with millions of people's money and you've got investments they can't sell and you go through that process? So that was shaped me massively. And, you know, I 10 times the investor now, like I have no yeah, problem. Yeah. Like I understand how to do it. You know, when you're dealing with JVs and investors, you need to be make sure it's a ridiculously clear. Like one of the changes I would make is if you were my investor, Corey, I'd say, hey, Corey, are you ready to lose every single dollar? Yep. Good. Let's invest together. I would just <laughs> say that I know every single person, because what I did was this is great investment. You're going to have this projected ROI and over this time and look at the historical data. And if you look at the performa, this is what we're targeting. Even if we only have half the profit, it's still so awesome. And it was honest and true, except the crash happened. And then those people might've leveraged themselves too much because of the hype in the market. And as an investor who would take someone's money, I wouldn't have taken their money. So everyone made their call and we definitely had disclaimers. Like everyone had their own, that no one was manipulated or sold hard. It was the market was so booming that people would throw money. And so I think as an experienced investor, I would qualify the investors to make sure that they have enough money to invest. So if there's any kind of changes in the market, they're prepared to take that ride. Cause I could have taken the ride. No problem. Let's take the ride. Let's ride it out. But that's not how it was set up. They were set up to win and make money. And so when the market's yeah. crashing, what happens is people's colors change. Like everyone was pretty good, but there was a few people that left a bad mark in my life. Investors aren't happy, right? That's hard, man. When you want to make someone happy and, and you did everything you possibly could. So there's a handful of people that don't have relationship with to this day, which is very sad. Yeah, over for that. sure. So that leaves a mark that learn lessons, right? Yeah. Overall, sure. still have a portfolio, still got rentals, still in all four cities. I'm way down. What I did was I offered deals to investors, to all my investors. I said, here's my deal. You can buy me out this way. We can ride it out. And I left options and I faced every single one of them and said, this is where we're at. Proactively, some people bought it out. Every investment was slightly different. So we created exit strategies for everyone. And I repositioned myself because I could read the play. Like how long is it going to take to actually get back to creating an investment company? And my marriage was falling apart. I was stressed beyond stressed. It wasn't a good dad. I wasn't happy. I was out of alignment. So there's some other things going on, not just investing. And so I repositioned the business. We have a smaller portfolio, handful of investors rather than 20. We changed things and I became sales and marketing coach and I started coaching people. And that's where I fell in love with coaching. I was like, this is awesome. When did you become a realtor then? After coaching. Oh, was it? Okay. So you started coaching. I never wanted to be an agent, Corey. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking that you moved into real estate and then became a coach. So you started coaching. That's what everyone else does. That's why I'm a different coach. So we teach business and we teach personal growth and mindset and leadership when every other real estate coach out there teaches sales. And what happens when the sales work though, Corey? Great. If you had 20 listings right now, how are you going to do the feedback? That's called systems. You need an assistant to run those things. That's called business coaching, not sales coaching. And that's the biggest screwed up thing about the real estate coaching business. Coaches are only coaching sales. That's stupid. For sure. Because how do you run a business? Infrastructure. What happens, how do you what happens when you burn out and you hate your yeah, you, You're taking a salesman and teaching them how to just work harder until you burn out and do more bigger goals. Like there's no sense of any kind of purpose. It's just a GCI goal. Work your ass off. And what happens is the agent gets so big that the brokers then can utilize 
their image to recruit new agents. Like, oh, I got a big agent here. So they want you to be really big image wise so they can recruit more agents in. The whole business is not for the agent. If it was for the agent, we'd figure out what goals would serve the life you want. And maybe it's 30 deals. We wouldn't push people to 40 and 50 and 60 deals because why? It's going to cost them their life, their marriage, their time, their mental health. Why not build an amazing business that you can have an amazing life? What if it's 30, 40 deals a year? What if it's 20 deals a year? Like figure out what that number is so you can build an amazing life and then use life goals and then build business systems around it, hire personnel, build your after the sales systems. Like no one's doing these things. So that's why we're niched right in helping a major, huge part of the industry for sure. Because most people are just taking sales training. Do your calls, accountability, set your business plan and work your way back. You got to do 10 calls a day. And then if you do that, like it's sales, that's all sales training. Where's the business coaching for real estate agents? Yeah, 100%. Started a coaching business. And when did you get your real estate license in? So I coached for a few years. So I coached everything from videographers, real estate agents to national energy company. I was doing full bore business coaching. And I sat back one time and I realized from a marketing standpoint, Ben, as a business coach, how do you refer that? How do you refer, hey, I'm a business coach, Corey. Okay, what does that mean? No one would know. So I sat back and I thought, I'm a real estate business coach. All of a sudden you could refer me. All of a sudden I could build a brand. I could create an avatar and speak to that avatar. I could solve their problems. I could drill right down. That's called niching. So I niched out. I worked with agents and I knew the market really well as an investor. I knew that most agents sucked, to be honest with you, (laughs) when it comes to after the sale and emotional connection. And they were good at the service side. But like there's a condo, we bought 16 condos one time in like two weeks with a group of us. And then I didn't even get a thank you card, Corey. Really? No thank you card, no nothing. I made this lady like $150,000 or maybe, I don't know, $120,000. Why not just like say, Ben, you just made me a fortune. Just say thank you. I don't need to be one and dying. But that's when I said to myself, if I was an agent, I would kill at this game. Like, and she was a nice lady, beautiful, awesome real estate agent, just no time and no business structure so she can focus on building relationships, blowing the client's minds and keep them for life. Her job was to get the transaction done. And she did a great job at that, except she never kept me. I jumped to somebody else as soon as I left her. And it's like, I thought, why are we not building real estate businesses where you just stack your referrals and live off the percentage of referrals from your base? And you have to connect with people and blow their minds. And I just couldn't believe it. So I became an agent. And what I did though, Corey, was I was coaching agents first. I niched into agents seen some huge success right away because of the mindset psychology mixed with sales and business. What happened was I made it up. I'm like, I'm going to do a program, real estate launch program. So just what I call it, super creative real estate launch program. I convinced, I think there was 12 agents. I said, look, I'm a business coach. I'm going to become an agent. I said, who needs to launch? I'll do it with you. And so every week we get together I was making money and I was coaching the entire way through my real estate career and became rookie of the year in Edmonton. I think my income was around 440 grand for the first year. Wow. That wasn't using any of my contacts and I had no lead gen, no website. And half the time I didn't have a business card. And then the next thing I did was started a team. I hired an assistant before I even had sales because I'm building a business. Like imagine getting a restaurant and once we have enough money, I'll get a cook. It's the most limiting mindset, how we get taught as agents, like wait till you're at a certain amount of deals and then get help. doesn't work that way. You'll never make it. So I got that. And then I got a team member Within my first 12 months, I had a $96,000 month in one. Amazing. But I had three or four or five of those deals were with a synergy partner because he was too good to be a team member. So I brought him on and I threw him leads and I did neighborhood marketing and did door knocking. 
but I know how to do it. I know how to get it going. So I made, I don't know, 1.1 million my first couple of years in the business. And at that point, I'm thinking, I got to get out of this game. And I think I got to get into coaching. So it took me nine years to get out though. So yeah, nine years as a realtor where you went back to full-time coaching at that point? Yeah, sold my business. So Team Osterveld is, is uh, the body of it is still there. Now it's with Core McEwen. So I've still yeah. got my clients. I'm still getting paid. Still got a nice deal. Amazing. You don't do anything half-ass, I guess. It's all in kind of thing. Yeah, I just think that compared to everyone, but normal for successful business people are what I do. Why it's not normal is because we're looking at it through the eyes of typical real estate agents. But if you look at business owners, this is how you do it. There's lots of guys that build lots of successful businesses and then exit and they build systems. And the real estate business doesn't teach that though. Corey, the other day I was speaking at a brokerage and the guy said, just don't talk about hiring the broker. And I'm just like, wow, <laughs> like it stresses them out. I'm like, that's literally the answer is to hire help. It could be two hours a week to do something that you don't have to do. You trade $40 for two hours of a human's time. Like this is the only thing I should be talking about. Like if I walked into your business and said, Corey, give me a hundred bucks. Okay. I'll give you five hours of Ben Osterveld time. Could you find something for me to do? hundred percent. This is what the state of the market is. Don't tell my agents to fucking hire. What? Okay, awesome. It's such defense. Why would they tell you to do this? I'm going to go for lunch with the guy and ask him. I see. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of a weird thing to say, don't do that. Well, right? because I think they've attended some things of mine and they got stressed out over it. Oh, I see. And so I'm going to adjust. I'm not going to be ignorant. I'm going to change it to saying, let's get help. I'm going to change the word. Let's get some help, guys. Understand for 40 bucks, you can buy two hours worth of someone's time. For 80 bucks, you get four hours. Are you kidding me? Four hours. You know what you could do? You could launch a birthday system. You could implement a newsletter. You could literally put in pre-write emails, plan an event. There's a hundred things for four hours of work for someone to do. Load your calendars. You could do pre-written videos and she could load all your birthday videos to every single person out there and preload it and they send it on an app. Like there's a so many things you could submit freaking paperwork. Like there's so many things yeah. run a commission tracker, do your bookkeeping like four hours. What would you do with that time? Like it's just people like I can't hire an assistant. It's just this weird salesman's mentality versus a business owner mentality. It's insane to me. For sure. I remember when I owned a home inspection company and this one realtor that for me business, She'd been a realtor for, I would say, over 35 years. And yeah. every time I saw her, she would say, Corey, I hate my life. <laughs> wow. Right? Because wow. she had no systems and she tried to hire someone to help, like, be a, kind of on our team. But then all her clients only wanted to use her. So she just basically could never take a vacation, could never take time it's off. Her choice. It's limited mindset. Yeah. Yeah. It's a controlling mindset. It's uh, no one's better than me. That's insane. What we're actually saying is this. My self-image is so tied to my work. And my value that I give my clients, that if their value drops, my image drops. It has nothing to do with client service. It's all about the psychology of proving myself, tying my identity to my work I do. If my identity is not tied to it and the client is 80% happy, that's honors. And they make it all about the client. I got to have the service. Bullshit. It's your emotional problem that your identity is tied to the performance of your work. That's selfish because. You're serving your client so you feel better. You protect your image. It's not even about the client. It's about your image. And so we got to get really honest. That's why we don't let go of our clients. That's why you don't scale because of emotional issues, not because of anything else. She can't let go. She can't let go of the client because her image would be affected because they're going to like, oh, business isn't as good. Well, my identity is not tied to my business. My identity is building a life I want to live. 
And then guess what would happen? She'd be forced to fix the problem and get systems in there. So the service is really good without her. The problem is they don't want to feel bad. So they just avoid it. Yeah, that makes sense. And if our listeners, a lot of them are investors and maybe sure. they're somewhere on the journey that you were on and still yeah. on today. How important would you say for them to find a really good coach, maybe to help them avoid, you know, pitfalls and dumpster fires, that kind of so stuff? So to find a good coach, man, real estate investing, there's a dime a dozen out there. Holy crap. I genuinely think that you need to get really clear on what you want because you're going to just listen to any coach. If the coach is saying, do what I did, follow my system, that's okay. But what if it doesn't fit you? You need a coach that can help you utilize real estate in a way, because there's many different ways to invest. There's building, there's buy and hold, there's flips, there's rooming houses, there's hotels, commercial, like there's so many different ways to do investing. Having a coach is critical, but there's odds are you're going to get a coach. You got to just figure out if they're actually out for you. So here's how I would interview a coach. Same thing I would do with anyone that interviews me. You have to understand that, are they really going to coach you on what you need? Or are they going to coach you to just be a version of who that coach is? If you're going to ask an interview, a real estate investment coach, and you say, hey, I want to get into investing. Okay. And the coach says, yeah, no problem. I can show you how to do that. That's a really bad sign. What you want is the coach to ask clarifying questions. So if Corey, say, if I was a real estate investment coach, Corey says, hey, Ben, I want to coach. I'd say, cool. What are your goals? Well, how much money do you have? What exactly do you want? A tenant just texted me. She's moving out. <laughs> oh, no, no. I tried to raise her rent. And she goes, I found a place for this much money. Can you match it? I might. That's hilarious. <laughs> but I had a real she, time here, right on the show. Yeah, I think I might take the deal. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> it's up a hundred bucks. Because if I can get it for 150 or 200 more, I might just take her deal for a year. Anyways, so the point is, yes, I believe a coach is critical. I would rather have a mentor, a coach or mentor. And I would have someone that says, what are you wanting? And then the coach decides, I don't know if I can get that for you. So that's a good coach. Like if someone comes to me, I'll give you an example. They wanted me to double their business. The guy had like hundreds of transactions. He wanted hundreds more. And I literally looked at him and says, I'm not your guy. And he's like, what are you talking about? Because he's used to being this top agent. And I'm like, you're not my guy. I said, not one time did you talk about what you wanted, your wife and kids, anything else. All you said was, I want more transactions. And I said, if you're not happy with what you have today, I'm not going to take you and double your business, which I probably could. So for me, I need people that want to build money, meaning, and freedom. So my style needs to be people that align to me. And so most real estate investment coaches are going to be like, yeah, I can help you for sure. That's a bad sign. Make sure they ask clarifying questions and qualify you first. If they're not qualifying you, that's not a good sign. I used to take anybody, Corey, as a coach, and it would be disastrous. The people that fit thought I was a hero. The people that didn't fit thought I sucked. Yeah, yeah. It was a misalignment, and it wasn't about my coaching. And then so a good coach will know how to qualify the right person. Like maybe they're just flippers. Maybe it's an investment long-term hold. Maybe it's limited partnerships or mutual fund RSP eligible investments. I don't know. There's so many different ways to find the right coach is the most critical thing. For sure. And we all have limiting beliefs or mindset kind of things we need to break through. So what are some ways that I guess you would help your clients like get, yeah. break, break through something like a mindset, maybe limiting belief? Yeah. I think if you wrote down all your goals and sit down and go, are they mine? I'd go down to every belief that I absolutely have and say, is it mine? So let's break one down right now. Okay. Let's break one down. Say, for example, in North America, a six pack is at the highest regard, right? Like if you have a six pack, you're the sexiest, no matter what, that's the highest level in my mind. Like you can have whatever, but if you had a six pack, you are like sexy. 
So all of us are like, I want a six pack. Okay. Is that our goal? Is that really what I want? So now let's pause. Let's go to Ethiopia, which I was spent a month in Ethiopia. Did you know in Ethiopia, if you're really fat, you're actually viewed as wealthy. So a six pack would not be what you want. So if I was born in Ethiopia, would I want a six pack? Yeah, if I was, obviously not. Well, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe oh, I would. <laughs> Maybe I wouldn't. And yeah, yeah. this, another example is I'm an Edmonton Oilers fan, right? Do you know what's crazy? I didn't choose that. I was born there. So I look at every single belief and then I redecide. Yeah, I want to be an Edmonton Oilers fan. But what if I wasn't an Edmonton Oilers fan? Which team would I choose? What a liberating thought. If I wasn't adopted into a Muslim family or a Christian family or a Jewish family, what religion would I choose, if any? If I wasn't a Jewish person, if it wasn't like we get all these different things in life. So I think the biggest thing I would love to tell people is figure out who you are and what you want. So much of what we do is for someone else. And when I die, I want to know that I did the life that I wanted to live. When I die, I don't want to have any regrets that I followed someone else's dreams. Because what happens is that's where anger, depression, anxiety live. When you're out of alignment to your own life. Yeah. So from a mindset part, get so bloody honest, it scares you. Find out who you really are and then chip away at starting putting pieces of building a life you love. Like I wanted to live in West Vancouver, not a good financial decision. I could have lived in Timbuktu and had money or lived in Bali. I could have done Bali, but it wasn't a money decision for me. It was, I wanted it. I can feel it. I'm home here. My car, I drive, I jump into my car and I love it. But it's, is it for everyone else? Nope. I didn't buy that car for anybody. So it's too much of what we do is we live for others, but we sacrifice our entire life mission and goals. Get really, really honest and ask yourself, are your goals yours? Yeah, it's amazing, man. That's such a great way to finish the show here. I got just some more personal, like three Let's questions go. I'll throw your way. So what's some hobbies or interests you do outside of coaching? I have an electric unicycle, spent five G's on it. I saw you on it when you were here on No Sale Park. Yeah, you got it, man. <laughs> I also uh, play men's league hockey. And honestly, man, I just love my family. I hang out with my daughters and my kids and I just, my boy, I coach hockey a little bit and uh, I just love it. Love speaking. And so- Amazing. Yeah. Any trips or any vacations planned for this year? You're gonna, you guys going to go head, anywhere? Heading to Toronto. Heading to Toronto here for five days with the kids. And then I'm going to stay there. I got a bunch of speaking events and meetings. We're doing alumni, private alumni event dinner with all of our crew. I'm heading to Hawaii in July in a mastermind I'm part of. So doing that, you know, Winnipeg got some speaking in Winnipeg. Got another one. Nah, just You're a busy time. guy. Love traveling. <laughs> yeah. And where's somewhere you, you want to go? What's on your bucket list? Somewhere you haven't been, but you want to go to? I think Vietnam would be kind of cool. Vietnam, I don't know why, kind of one of those things. Dude, I'm living in the best place in the world right now. No, yeah, I, I love Vancouver. Like I was in Toronto recently and sorry for anybody listening from Toronto, but I think Vancouver is a lot prettier. You got oh the mountains, I'm, mountains, ocean, Stanley Park. Like kidding me? Yeah, yeah. exactly. And that's, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to Toronto and I'm like, meh, meh. Yeah, yeah I mean, you got to get out of Toronto and go to all the other places. Like I'm staying central. I got a cool Airbnb, really cool one, but still like, still it's like just a concrete jungle, man. Like even Niagara falls are good, but that's a dirty old city. It's yeah. When you get all, I remember when there was a kid and I thought, oh, the falls are so cool. But as soon as as it was an adult or, this place you know, gross. it's like, wow, there's strip clubs everywhere. I'm like, I know. I, I, I never noticed that. <laughs> it was like a red light district and some kids games. And it's, it was, yeah. uh, I think it's cool, but it's definitely like, it's not it. I like, I'm a cabin guy, mountain guy, nature guy, and beauty, beauty. That's what I like. So Me too. I, yeah, I don't travel as much just for holidays as much because I literally live in one of the most beautiful places in the world right now. 
I think that's why a lot of people like Calgary, right? Obviously, it's still affordable, but we're so Calgary's close good. to yeah. the mountains, right? We don't have a great water around us. We do have the river, but uh, but yeah, still. But beautiful. you're right there, right? Kananaskis is gorgeous. I lived in Calgary for five years. I would love to repeat those years because I didn't take advantage of the beauty. I was busy just grinding, hustling. <laughs> hustling. Yeah. Well, man, thank you so much for being on the show. I think you added a ton of value to the listeners. And uh, what's the best way someone listening wants to reach out, get in touch with you? What's the best way for them to do that? You know what? I love social. Ben Osterveld and any social first, B-E-N-O-O-S-T-E-R-V-E-L-D. That's Ben Osterveld. They can buy my book, The Richest Real Estate Agent, How to Build a Seven-Figure Business Without Sacrificing Relationships. And every single investor should read this as well. It's all in there, man. It's emotional intelligence. It's the relationship with fear, but it's also how to build a business. And of course, it's niched in real estate, but you can get that on Amazon, The Richest Real Estate Agent. And then my website, benosterveld.com. And that's coaching programs, retreats, and lots of stuff going on. Ben. Amazing, man. Thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks, Corey. Being awesome, man. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Peckford. I'm an investment-focused real estate agent in Calgary, Alberta. I'm also an entrepreneur, Red Seal electrician, and I hold a Master Home Inspection Certification. If you're thinking about investing in the Calgary area, please reach out and let me put my real estate expertise to work for you. I can be reached at 587-893-2272. Follow me on Instagram at PeckfordCorey, or my website is CoreyPeckford.com. Plus, we have a Facebook group. It's Calgary Real Estate Investing Group, so Craig for short. Please follow that. If you're getting great value from this podcast, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. That would be greatly appreciated. Thanks. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.